And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We'll be finishing out the chapter today, I promise. I know we've been spending a long time here in this chapter, but it's been a good one. Uh, And this passage is no exception. Luke 17, we'll be starting in verse 20, and we will be looking at the coming kingdom uh, and the coming judgment that is accompanying it. So listen carefully, because this is God's word to you this morning. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, to his word. Let's now ask God to give us insight as we look at this passage together. Oh, Lord, we do ask that you would be with us as we look at this text. There is so much to see out of here And there is so much encouragement that we can draw from it. So help us 
to understand it and to understand it well. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Here in this passage, the people that are listening to Jesus want to know when are things supposed to happen? When is the kingdom coming? Where is judgment coming? Why is all of this supposed to happen? But these questions are mostly talk about the when and the where. And they're missing the why. Anyone who has ever taken a road trip with children remembers hearing the dreaded and often unanswerable question. You already know. Are we there yet? It's a difficult question to answer because often the age that the children are when they ask it, they don't understand the concept of three and a half hours. It's hard to do the math on how many episodes of Blue's Clues that is to try to communicate that to them. Even if you could, you can't predict traffic patterns. You don't know yourself when these trips will come to an end. But really, the answer that the question that the children really want to ask is why aren't we there already? Why must we endure this grueling boredom of the car ride? And we come up with our equally profound answer and say, we'll get there when we get there, which is our shorthand way of saying, please, children, I, as the parent, set the agenda. We will actually get there, so trust me, rest in my authority and grace as we endure this road trip together. Who knew that car banter could be filled with so much meaning? But this is what we want to answer to our children. And ultimately, we have the same questions for God, don't we? Why do we have to endure a world in which marauding forces can take over a country? Why are we still enduring a world in which there is sickness and death, separation and disease and hardship? How long until this is over, we ask. But of course, that question is supposed to be why. Why hasn't this stopped? And here, Christ is giving us the same profound answer as we go through this passage, that he is going to return. We might not know exactly when, but that's not really the point. It's much more important to know why and what is coming for us. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look, as is our custom, at two points today. The first is that the kingdom of God is coming, and in some ways has come already. And then the second point is that the judgment is coming. You really can't have one without the other. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we pick up in verse 20 with the Pharisees posing yet another question to Jesus. They want to know, when is this kingdom of God coming? See, at the time, there was the assumption that when the kingdom of God came, that there would be these massive apocalyptic signs in the sky, that it would be really obvious when it was that the kingdom of God was to arrive. But Jesus is telling them that that's not how this is going to come. 
It's not going to come in signs that can be observed, these great apocalyptic witnesses of the heavens. But instead, it's going to be announced just like it always was in the prophets. When John asked Jesus, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? Jesus says what? Not the moon has turned to blood, but he said the lame walk, the blind see, and the dead are raised to life. That's exactly what Jesus has been doing. The Pharisees missed that. They were looking for something else. They wanted political revolution. They wanted social utopia. They weren't really interested in lepers being cleansed. They weren't interested in prostitutes being forgiven. They thought they had a bigger vision than that. Shows just how small-minded the Pharisees and we ourselves can be. So Jesus is saying, it's not coming in ways that can be observed, but nor will it be, look, here it is or there. Meaning it's not going to be in these secret places that only special people with special knowledge are able to find. Instead, he tells them, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, what does this mean? When I was looking at this passage, when I first read this, I thought, oh, he's talking about the disciples that are in the midst of the crowd. But he's not talking to them until later. That's verse 22. He's talking to the Pharisees. These are people that have not come to the kingdom yet, so it can't be talking about them. There have been other commentators that thought, well, this means that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, meaning it's inside you, it's in your heart. And it's this thing that is a spiritual reality, an internal And that seemed like a good argument. But when you look at the rest of Luke, as other commentators pointed out, the kingdom of God was something that you entered, not something that entered into you. So instead, and I think this is correct, what he is saying here is when we talk about the kingdom of God, we mean the rule and reign of God. And who better embodies that than Christ himself? When he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, since we can't see him, he's probably saying, it's right here. Behold, you don't have to look for it. It's not over there. It's not over here. It's right in front of you. It's in your midst. It's me. It's Jesus. And it's really easy to lose that. It's really easy to think that the kingdom of God can be reduced down to social help or social change. Does it include that? Sure. A society that has been transformed by Christ is going to look different. No question. But we can't boil it down to that. There are other ways that you can achieve social change. A lot of them are really scary, but you can do it. And when we miss this, when we forget that Christ is the goal, Christ is the focus, We'll lose. Is the church a place for us gathered together? Is this a wonderful place to find community? Absolutely. But that's not the point. You can find community in your Kiwanis Club. That's not exclusive to the church here. You can say, okay, well, you know, I want to hear an inspiring message that gets me through the week. It's like, focus is not me. I may be up front, but that's not my focus. If we could do this as human beings, I'd be in the back, but we need to see something. My point is to preach Christ and him crucified, because that's the point. 
If I start pushing you away from that, then the church has no reason to exist. If at any point we lose track of who Jesus is or pointing, constantly drawing our gaze back to Jesus, then I am doing damage. It'd be better if I didn't say anything. Because that's the kingdom. It's Jesus. And too often we in the American culture want to say, that's it? Can we get some good lighting? Get a band going? Someone who can talk a little better? Because, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Jesus is great and all, but, you know, we got to have something to spice it up. That betrays how little we know of Jesus. We have the same reaction that the Pharisees do. Oh, okay, well, you're supposed to be bringing about forgiveness and the transformation of our souls? That's great. What can you do about the Romans? What can you do about that other political party we don't like? It's missing it. Missing the kingdom that's right in front of us. That's a tragedy. Jesus was right there. They still missed it. Goes to show this has to be a heart change. You can be face to face with Jesus and still miss him. If you're looking for something else, you'll find something else. But if you're looking for Christ, you'll find him too. And he's right here, here in the scriptures. Jesus has begun his kingdom work here. He has arrived. The kingdom has started. But there's more to come. Because we can look at other passages and we see places and other passages in scripture where the lion's lying down with the lamb and the baby is playing next to the serpent's den because there's no danger anymore. It's like, what about that? Like, yes, that is going to be more about what Jesus is going to do. And that is going to be the fullest expression of the kingdom and what his work is that he's doing. But there's more that has to be done first. We're going to get there. We're going to see the rule and reign of God in the political sphere and everywhere else. But for right now, Jesus turns to the disciples. And this is where we're going to look into our second point. That judgment is coming as well. And this is something that we cannot afford to not look at closely. He turns to the disciples and things seem a little dreary. Verse 22. He said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What's this Son of Man title? It turns out this is Jesus' favorite expression and name for himself, is Son of Man. He refers to himself this way 28 times in the book of Luke. If you're interested in stats like I am, it'd be 30 more times in Matthew, 14 in John, and 10 in Mark. It was overwhelming how often he refers to this title. And this isn't just something that is not grounded in context. Jesus is referring to something here. And if you will, you'll turn with me back into the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 7. This is where this topic comes up. And I want to spend some time here because this is important for us to see the Son of Man and what this looks like. Again, if you have to use the table of contents, no shame, as we look into Daniel chapter 7. I 
I'm going to start in verse 9. This is Daniel, uh, is a prophet who is, at, who is in captivity in Babylon, and he is seeing this vision of the Ancient of Days, God himself. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man that Jesus is referring to. And this passage is ultimately referring to Jesus. Now, when it says the Son of Man, this is not saying that Jesus is merely a human being or that somehow Jesus was just another teacher that somehow managed to rise through the ranks and become equal with God. That's not possible. No one can become equal with God. But here, the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man a kingdom. That all the world is going to worship him. The only one who is worthy of worship is God. So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man is coming, that's a big claim. Saying, I am the one who is worthy of this throne. That all peoples, all nations, all languages shall praise me for all of eternity. Now, Go back to Luke 17. We pick up with Jesus talking about himself as the son of man. Now you can imagine the disciples would want to see a day like that, don't you think? I want to see that day of Jesus coming and reigning and ruling forever and ever with no one to oppose him. But here Jesus says, you will desire to see that day and you will not see it. That day hasn't come yet. Not in its fullest expression, anyway. Jesus has come, died on the cross, and conquered sin and death. Praise him! But there's more that's yet to be done. And that's what the disciples are looking towards. But they're not going to see it. But they're going to want to. They're going to want to see it so bad, he goes on into verse 23, that they will say to you, look there or look here, but don't go out and follow them there. There are going to be those, and we could cite many famous examples of it throughout history, of people that have tried to do just that. Who have tried to claim to be the Messiah who has come back, and they demand allegiance and 
wander off into a jungle somewhere. Jesus says that's not how this is going to be. Don't follow people who claim to be the Messiah. They're not. Don't think that just because something strange is going on in this jungle over here, that maybe there's something worth checking out there. No, 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 no. When Jesus comes back, trust me, you're not going to miss it. Even someone as unobservant as I am. My wife and I have had many laughs at my own inability to see things directly in front of me. The number of times I've looked for things on the counter and the thing is right. I've hovered my hand over it several times and have still missed it. But even someone as unobservant as myself is not going to miss when the Son of Man returns. It's not going to be someone giving you directions and saying, you can't miss it. It's like, I can. But no one's going to miss that. Why? Look at the image that he uses here in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. We've all had those times where we're outside and suddenly it's like a wall of light just comes and hits everybody. And everybody does the, because everybody in the field saw it. There's no missing lightning that goes from sky to sky. So there will be no missing of the Son of Man. You can imagine this. the disciples maybe get a little bit more excited again. It's like, okay, well, at least when he comes, he's going to make a grand entrance when he does. But Jesus reminds them there's something he must do first. Verse 25. But first, he, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus has to go to the cross. Jesus has to be scourged. Jesus has to live a human life prone to all the things that we're prone to except sin. He had to deal with rejection. He had to deal with loss. He had to deal with sickness. He had to deal with pain. He had to deal with fatigue. None of those things he had ever experienced before. He had to suffer many things. There was no crown without sacrifice. This is what Jesus has to do. That there is suffering first. He is going to purchase redemption for the world. To have a kingdom, he is going to buy it with his own blood. Not buying it from Satan. Not buying it from sin. This is buying it from the judgment of God that is supposed to come to us. We owe a debt Because we have committed cosmic treason and demands capital punishment. There is no sin that does not deserve our blood. And that's why Christ had to pay for that. That's why he had to go to the cross. He had to pay this penalty. But the generation that was going to be before him was going to reject him. The religious leaders that were right in front of him were going to be cheering on and stirring up the crowds that, they, that he would be crucified. The normal run-of-the-mill people just walking around trying to live their lives were standing there and indifferent or even mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross. It was going to be rejection. But of course, Jesus doesn't stay on the cross. He rises from the dead to show not only has he paid the penalty in full, but that he can raise 
to new life. Jesus can be raised from from the dead. He can raise your dead heart, trust me. He can help you with sin. Yes, that sin Jesus can deliver you from, whatever that is for each of you individually here. He can raise your heart. The gift that he offers is precious. So you are a tremendous fool and in great danger if you ignore it. And that's what he mentions here in verse 26 that Jesus carries on. Not only is the Son of Man's arrival going to be something that you can't miss, but this is going to mean something for you if you happen to be alive in that day. Jesus pulls in two examples, both of which are some rather extreme evil that's going on. He pulls in Genesis 6, 5, in the days of Noah. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the situation that Noah was in. What about Lot? In Genesis 18.32, Abraham is trying to make a deal with God where he's trying to spare the city if he could find 50, no 45, no 40, no 30, no 20, no 10. If you can just find 10 righteous people in this city, would you spare it? Well, he didn't spare the city, so there weren't even 10 decent people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was great wickedness everywhere. Yet the offer of salvation was plain. Noah was building an ark for 120 years, preaching as he went that there was a judgment coming. Lot, it says in another passage in the New Testament, was disturbed by the evil that he saw around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the time came that they had to flee the city, he went to his sons-in-law and said, come on, we need to get out of here. God's going to destroy the city. But they just assumed he was joking and didn't take him seriously. Those offers were there. But you know, it wasn't just those that were caught up in evil continually. Look what else what Jesus talks about here. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Good verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Jesus doesn't talk about how evil everybody was in that time, though he could have. What he's drawing to is that everyone was just going about their lives. Everything looked just as normal as every other Tuesday when we go out to get our groceries. We can assume that because life has gone on as it is going on today as it always has, that Jesus isn't coming. Or that we can be in danger of this judgment falling by being distracted just as much as we can be destroyed by doing evil. If we are indifferent to Jesus, we are in just as much danger as if we are opposed to Jesus. There's no fence sitting with God. You're either with him or you're not. And that's what we see here. I can imagine there were people that were in Noah's village that were planning to get married that weekend. Those that had bills that they needed to settle up or a business deal they were hoping to close the following Monday. 
Maybe there were even some that were thinking, you know, this Noah guy has been going on for some time, but I don't know, I heard him last week and he's starting to make some good points, but once things slow down after a couple of weeks, then I'll give this boat thing some thought. I'll give this judgment thing a little bit more consideration. But two weeks later, never came. Three days later, the boat was shut. There was no getting on it at that point. And that's how it is now. We don't see somebody building a boat. We don't see someone making efforts to avoid the judgment that's to come, but that doesn't mean it's not coming. All of us have something that we have to think about with that. Choosing not to submit to Christ right now is a decision not to submit. It's not a holding pattern, maybe I'll decide, I've got a couple weeks to think about it sort of thing. No. Your home with Christ does not go under contract. You either make the decision now or you don't. Because you're not guaranteed next week. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the ride home. Christ could come back now before I finish the sermon. Keep being expectant. You'll be right one day. But even those of us who are here, we're reminded that we have to take this judgment day seriously too. One commentator put it this way. We're reminded that neither Noah nor Lot was a paragon of the virtues. But both realized that the catastrophe must come, and both took measures to save themselves. The Christian message is not for those who think they deserve a better fate than their neighbors, but for those who, in the midst of universal indifference and complacency, realize the desperateness of their situation and ask, what must I do to be saved? In other words... We don't look around and say, well, we're better off, so we should do quite well on the judgment. Thank you very much. I don't need Christ as a crutch. I can do this quite well on my own. No. Noah and Lot needed salvation just like the rest of the population did, and so do we. We can't pride ourselves that because we sit in this building once a week that we are somehow better than everybody else. Or that we don't need salvation just as much as the people that we're disgusted by when we hear their name. We need to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? How do you plan on getting through Judgment Day? The days of Noah and Lot, those were warm-ups. The judgment that is coming is going to be where no one can hide. What do you propose to hide with? Got to defend ourselves in court with a lawyer? Try to hold him back with a gun or a bomb? Nothing is going to stop that advance. Nothing will stop this judgment from coming. So give it up. Let it go. Make that decision now. Because there's no guarantee that there will be tomorrow to make it. 
And lest we think that we can hold on to our own agenda and Jesus and somehow manage to hold on to the two, Christ mentions Lot's wife. Why does he do this? Well, when the angels told Lot to flee from the city, they said, don't turn back. Don't look back at this city, but keep your face set forward towards those mountains. You just keep going. But Lot's wife turned back. Not as a mere glance of curiosity as to what was going on back there. But she was longing for that city. She had lived there for some time. Probably remembers a lot of her friends that she built up in that city. Remembers the herb garden in her window and the cafe around the corner. And looks longingly at that city. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of things going on that I disagree with, but, you know, I just miss it. We can do that with our old lives, can't we? For those of you that have come to Christ later in life, we can look back and think that we were supposedly more free back then. Life was easier when I didn't have to be honest. I felt like I had more fun in life when I didn't have to worry about who I was sleeping with or what I was looking at the internet. And we can delude ourselves into thinking that we were freer at that time. Don't do that. Don't look back with longing. Because if you look back and think that that's beautiful, it's because you haven't seen Christ yet. You haven't seen the beauty of this Savior that stands in the midst of you. we're trying to hold on to something with our old life and hold on to it tighter and tighter, you're going to lose it. That's what it says here in this next verse. Here in verse um, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. He's basing this off of on the day when the Son of Man comes, if you happen to be Outside your house, there's not going to be running back in and try to protect something else from God's judgment. We're not going to say run in, try to grab something precious of ours that we can take into heaven. That's not going to be the case. It's all of Christ or nothing. And if we try to hang on to those other things in our life, even supposed good things. It's good to provide for your family. It's good to have a plan for retirement. It's good to have a relationship with someone that you love. But if you're holding on to that and saying, I can't live without this, or, I, or if this comes between me and Christ, I'm going to choose this instead of Jesus, that's not going to work. And if we try to hold on to that, it's going to slip through. It's like trying to grasp onto sand. The harder you squeeze, the more of it comes out. And it's the same thing with our own lives. We're going to say, I'm going to hold on to my time. I'm going to hold on to my agenda. You're just going to lose it. So don't. Hold it with an empty hand, open and ready. Christ may take something that is precious to you, but I promise you that he's going to fill your hand again with himself. This will be sufficient for you, and you will not regret having lost anything for Jesus. Trying to grasp of it, you'll just lose it. And then finally, we look into verses 34 and 35. 
when Christ does come. We don't get to tell Jesus, well, I know someone who knows you. That works when we're trying to do business in other areas of life, right? Like, well, you can give me a special deal because I'm friends with your friend. And that works with us. That doesn't work with Jesus. You are either known by Jesus or you are not. And here in these two things, two people are in bed. This is a really intimate relationship. But one is taken and one is left. One is spared judgment. The other has to endure it. Two women are working together. They're grinding at the mill, making bread. She's been on the other side of that mill for 12 years. They've been talking with each other every day. One is taken. One is left. Judgment will be that great separator. And no matter who you associate with, who you've been married to, who your daddy was, or who, what church you went to, none of that matters. It's do, have you made a relationship with Christ? That's going to be the thing that's going to deliver. And look here in verse 37. The disciples want to know, where is this going to take place? One commentator looked at this and thought that maybe the disciples figured if it's a particular house or a field that we're trying to flee from, that maybe there's a specific location of judgment. Maybe you can just be out of the blast zone when that comes down. And Jesus gives a sort of cryptic answer. And he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's a lot of opinions on what that phrase means. But as near as I can tell, and as other commentators have pointed out to me, that what this is referring to is that there is no escaping judgment. Wherever there is spiritual deadness, Jesus will find it. Just like vultures find a body. They're very good at that. There's no body that's hidden from a vulture. And there's going to be no sin that's hidden from Christ. He will come back and he will deal with it. So you have your opportunity to settle with him now. Or you can settle with him then as the vulture hovers over your body. It's a grim reality. We have to address that. It's one of those things that always irritates me about presentations of Jesus on social media. They always want to reduce Jesus to the thing that makes their point. And people will say, well, Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew who tried to stand for the people of Israel and oppose the standing status quo of the religious right. I think that's true. Jesus was Jewish. No, Jesus wasn't white. Yes, he stood for the poor and marginalized, but that's not all that we see of Jesus. That's actually a very non-threatening portrait. But that's not how Jesus presents himself. You need to look at the whole New Testament. Turn with me to Revelation 19. See if this portrait of Jesus survives our more sterile presentations of him. Revelation 19. This is John writing. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the Jesus that flips over tables. And that's the Jesus that's coming for us. We don't talk about Jesus as a conquering king, but we should. And texts like this remind us of the whole story. That blood that Jesus' robe is dipped in, if you're not in Christ, that's your blood that's on that robe. He is coming to conquer. So submit. For your own sake, do it. Because that's what's coming. And it doesn't have to be that way for you. Because Jesus has shed blood too. And it was for you. God is a conquering king. And he has come not only to conquer, but also to deliver. As one commentator pointed out in these other passages, yes, those days were cataclysmic around Noah and Lot, but Noah and Lot were saved. You can be delivered too. So our takeaway from this is that Christ is a king and he is coming to conquer and to protect. It says in our shorter catechism, How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This is a great truth. No one is getting away with anything. Those folks that have hurt you, you can give up having to feel revenge for them. Don't worry, their day is coming. Either Christ is going to forgive them in which their punishment was laid on him, or they're not going to submit. And that blood-soaked warrior king is coming for them. That should give us some sobriety. That should give us some compassion. Our king will not let anything go. As one song by Andrew Peterson puts it, that he will rise up in the end and rise up in judgment. No tyrant that has oppressed his people is going to get away with anything. Murder every son, ravish every daughter. The father sees it. 
and he will rise up in the end, and he will conquer for himself. Judgment will be executed, and the kingdom, which has no end, will be finally established. That is our hope. That is our comfort. Justice will roll down like rivers. This is a cure for worry and a relief for the need for revenge. So I appeal to you once more. I make no assumptions as to the spiritual condition of anybody in here. If you've not come to Christ, come. If you need to speak with me, speak with me. You say, oh, well, I've been embarrassed. I've been coming to, I've been coming to church for 25 years and been faking all, all this time. Trust me. Any last little bit of embarrassment to deal with in my office will greatly be outweighed by what's coming. It's all right. Deal with Christ. Come to him and let him be the king that comes to defend you. The one who loves you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've spent together. I thank you for being our conquering king, our coming hero, who will deliver us from sin, death, and evil. Oh, we do pray that this day comes quickly. But let us be preparing for this day. Let us come to you in our own hearts and make sure that we are right with you. And then let us go to our neighbors and make sure that they are right with you. To announce as royal heralds that the king is coming. Let us be ready. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.